Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And make sure to be sending in those questions for us that may arise as you're listening to us uh, banter back and forth or have conversation about uh, even questions that we may answer. And you have more questions, we would love to take time to answer those questions. Uh, There's a whole lot of questions I just said, but there's three ways you can send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question, or you can direct messages on social media via Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. Make sure to DM us there, or you can direct messages on Instagram. Uh, Our Instagram handle is thegrovech. We also get those questions there as well. So we'd love for you to send those in. We try to take time as much as we can week over week to answer those questions. So... All right. Well, this week we are beginning our, basically, this is what we're doing. This is the rest this of the year. This is the descent, the final descent for the end of the year, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, it is nuts. It's been a, it's been a good year. I've enjoyed this this season of Let's Read the Bible. Hopefully you'll, you'll join us for season five. That's nuts. That's coming up in like a month. So there you go. Uh, but we're going to talk about Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is probably the most well-known of Israel's prophets, especially with the ones who wrote a book, because I think the other one that could rival it would be Elijah. So, But yeah, that scrub never wrote a book, so what are you going to do? <laughs> Just kidding. Elijah's awesome. Oh, he's going to rebuke you when we get to heaven. That's true. You said I was a scrub. Uh, and he, uh, Isaiah was almost certainly the most well-spoken of the prophets. Um, I'd never heard this before, but it was in the, uh, the Essence of the Old Testament survey book that they talked about how Isaiah is often referred to as the Shakespeare of Israel, or oh, essentially geez. like the way that the way that he That's writes. That's like right up your alley. You're going to love that. It's all about it. Next yeah. time you speak from Isaiah, I'm pretty sure you're going to use that line. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, no, he definitely speaks really well. And then he shifts tone a bunch and uh, genre a bunch. And so it's Yeah, it's just a really interesting read through it. Um, I also thought it was interesting. His name means the same thing as Joshua, which I didn't realize they have the same base. So the, hmm. uh, the Hebrew of Isaiah is Yeshayahu, which is really fun to say. Uh, and then the Hebrew of Joshua is Yeshua. And and both of those were both of those names mean uh, Yahweh is salvation, uh, which is also Jesus. So Jesus is the uh, Greek transliterated version of Joshua, which itself is the English translated transliterated name Yeshua in Hebrew. So if you ever hear someone say Yeshua, that's why they're saying it because it's the actual. It's the if you went back in time to uh, the time of Christ, that is the name that he would recognize. Although I'm sure if you said Jesus, he'd be like, oh, hey, how's it going? But uh, <laughs> Yeshua is what people would have actually called him. So there you go. All that to say, Isaiah's name means Yahweh's salvation, which is fitting and beautiful. Uh, Isaiah is also an interesting prophet because he ministers like he ministers in the middle of the roller coaster. Like I always talk about how Judah, uh, I like if, if the, if I, if Israel and Judah, so the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, are roller coasters, Judah is a true roller coaster where it has ups and downs. And then uh, the northern kingdom of Israel is kind of like one of those free fall roller coasters where it just kind of drops and it never comes back up. Uh, and so Hezekiah is in the midst of this roller coaster. Um, he begins in the year that uh, King Uzziah dies famously. And Uzziah is a good bordering on great king. I think we'd land him in the good category though. Uh, and then he, but he ministers during the high point of the reign of King Hezekiah, who is one of the great kings of Judah, one of only two, <laughs> who we would actually call like the great kings, the other being Josiah later. So uh, Isaiah has moments where the kings of Judah suck and the people are really running away from the Lord, but he also has moments where the king is great and uh, the people are not doing that as much. So kind of we get to see the contrast there. Uh, uniquely, 
Isaiah opens up with sort of a summary of the main themes of his book of prophecy. And so the chronologically first thing that happens is Isaiah chapter six, but the first five chapters are kind of giving you an overview of um, basically, yeah, it's almost like a spark notes version of Isaiah of like the main mm-hmm. themes that are going to be tapple- tackled. So chapter one, it accuses the Israelites of, uh, and particularly Jerusalem, of being wicked and unfaithful to Yahweh, which, you know, fact check true. That's kind of the whole point of (laughs) a lot of the Old Testament uh, history books and pretty much all of the Old Testament prophetic books are how Israel constantly fails um, in keeping up their end of the covenant. And before uh, we, you know, look back at them and sneer, we would also fail by keeping up our end of the Old Covenant as well. So let's not act like we're perfect over here. Thank God. (laughs) How dare you? Thank God. And I mean that literally for the New Covenant. Uh, Chapters two through four are a longer prophecy that contain both poetry and prose. What a guy, this Isaiah. What an expert writer. Uh, And the section- What a Shakespeare. What a guy. Uh, the The section- Technically, we should say Shakespeare is Isaiah. That's true. Shakespeare is the English Isaiah. Boom. There you go. Uh, The section begins with the hopeful message of the word of Yahweh coming out from Zion in the latter days of, uh, in the latter days to judge the nations. So it's kind of after all these things have happened. uh, And it's funny how, like, I think there's a lot of, a lot of the hopeful sections of the prophetic books are about how, hey, God, Israel, just so you know, it's not just you who are going to be judged. It's going to be everyone. And you can kind of just imagine the Israelites, oh, thanks. Thanks, God. Like, <laughs> as long as the Edomites get it too. Uh, in verse six, Isaiah switches to the by now familiar theme of the day of the Lord, uh, or literally the day of Yahweh. As a reminder, whenever you see the Lord in all caps, that is what it's the name of God there. Uh which all the Israelites should not look forward to. So again, like a lot of the Isra- so a lot of the Israelites are like, yeah, day of the Lord, let's go. And Amos most famously, but a bunch of the other prophets are just kind of like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna go the way you think it's going to go. Uh, he reminds them in this section that the land is filled with idols and fortune tellers, or in other words, they're becoming just like the other nations, which I feel like I'm beating a dead horse at this point. But again, that is what Israel is doing. They slowly become exactly like the other nations. Uh, chapter three deals with the coming destruction of Jerusalem and again the mercy that will be shown to the remnant who survive God's judgment. Uh we explored this theme a lot in and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right? Where there's coming destruction, it's going to be really painful, but some people will be saved from this and then God will have mercy on those people. And again, we you know, God doesn't abandon his people. We know in Esther while they're living in foreign lands, God orchestrates even if it's kind of behind the scenes their provision. And then when they come back with Ezra and Nehemiah, we read about in those books, um, God, again, does not abandon his people. So really powerful stuff there. And then chapter four, it's really short, but it's a really cool um, statement showing that in the midst of judgment, Yahweh will be glorified. So it kind of gets at the the glory of God that is to be found even in the midst of these painful times. Uh, Chapter five abruptly changes tone and Isaiah adopts a writing style that is reminiscent of the Song of Solomon, which makes sense because it's a song. So it's kind of interesting, but the way you read it, it it very much, and this also could be because we just read Song of Solomon not that long ago. But when I was reading it, I was like, whoa, this really feels like, this really feels like Song of Solomon, the way it's laid out. Uh, But he sings a song to Israel of a vineyard that was tended well, but it produced only worthless grapes. I wonder what that's. I wonder what that's getting at. Oh, you know, man. Boy, a vineyard that was like had all the opportunity to succeed in the world, but didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that's a metaphor for. 
Um, yeah, obviously it's Israel. So okay, he's, <laughs> Isaiah's wasting no time. He's like, yeah. Like, his point is like God is the vine keeper in this, right? And so he's like nourished the vine. He's done everything. He's given mercy. Um, and yet the vine produces nothing but worthless grapes. Wild grapes, I think, is the phrase that's used. But just, you know, come on, Israel. Step, step up your game. What do you do? Um, Isaiah chapter 6 gives us the call of Israel, which I will never not read. Call of who? <laughs> Sorry, the call of uh, Isaiah. Which I will never not read because it's like one of the best, I shouldn't say the best, but it's one of my favorite passages of scripture. So this is Isaiah chapter six, verses one through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Again, this is kind of that, remember back to uh, uh, Solomon, when he dedicates the temple, what yep. happens? Smoke fills the temple. It's the glory of the Lord. And when he, they say the whole earth is full of his glory, what happens right after that? The smoke of the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And I said, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth saying, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Whom will, and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Um, that is normally where readings of this passage end. I want to read the whole thing because I think sometimes we do a little bit of a disservice to the passage when we say, and it's a really inspiring spot to end it on, but let's see what God calls him into. And he said, so this is Yahweh speaking to Isaiah, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eye, and their ears heavy and, their bl and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it it will be burned again with a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled the holy seed is its stump and so i mean just to go back i, I love like the the call the the picture of the call of isaiah is like it's like you know i i wish more of the prophet's put it actually into their into their books of what happens. Because like Isaiah, Ezekiel is another one where it's just like so powerful and so great. Um, I love the picture that's painted. Seeing this vision of the glory of the Lord, um, the seraphim flying around declaring God's holiness. And then, yeah, what does Isaiah do? He says, I, I am unclean. And so God literally purifies his lips and he says, all right, you're going. And it's kind of, it's a little bit reminiscent, right, of, um, it's interesting to me that the two big, well-described calls that we get. What does Ezekiel do? He's eating a scroll and it's showing that the word of the Lord is is inside of him now. What does Isaiah do? The, the angel of the Lord touches a burning coal to his lips and he talks about how your guilt is, uh, your sin is taken away and your, your guilt is atoned for. So mm -hmm. really cool passages there. Um, I, when God says, who is going to go for us? Isaiah steps up. He's like, it's me. Yeah. I will go. Send me right now. But his mission kind of sucks. And it's a mission. I mean, I guess you can kind of say like it's the way that all, almost all of the prophets, uh, if you're looking at it from 
like what you would pick to do. Most of the profits are not the ones that you would want to pick. It's just kind of like, you know, if I could pick, I would be like, give me Hackeye's job where it's just like, hey, everyone, <laughs> good job. Keep up the good work. Um, or even like, you know, like Obadiah or Nahum are the ones that are just like, uh, yeah, that other nation over there, they're in a lot of trouble. But Isaiah, his, God straight up tells him like, you're going you're gonna to preach my truth. You're going to prophesy and people are not going to listen. Yay. Yep. That's his call. So not as not as bad as Jeremiah, but it's still like or Ezekiel. Yeah, that's true too. Uh, but it is up there only because Ezekiel's was so like random as far as what he had to do to make for that God commanded him to right. right. That he got to do uh, Jeremiah was just heartbreaking because <laughs> nobody responded or repented. No. Anyways, it, yeah, that's kind of the that's the story of Israel pretty much for their whole history is uh, and 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 to be fair, that's the story of our lives so yep. much as well. Uh, Isaiah 7 through 12 gives us some of the most famous passages of the book, and they prom- they deal with the promise of Emmanuel. So Emmanuel means God with us. What? And so, yeah, and we're, you know, we're getting into Christmas season. It's perfect time. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is like the only famous Advent carol, and it's fantastic. And it's it literally is verbatim taken from the book of Isaiah, so... Parts of it, at least. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so, uh, in chapter seven, Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz. Oh, sorry, I should have said this at the call of Isaiah. So, when it says in the year King Uzziah died, so that is the end of a period that is good for Judah, where they're worshiping God for the most part. Uh, Uzziah is a good king. We said, you know, mm-hmm. he's not a great king, but he's definitely like yeah, he's a good king. Especially if you're grading on a curve. If you're grading on a curve, he's like an A. <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, I think like you kind of have to grade on a curve, anyways. Yeah. So afterwards, it's his uh, Ahaz. Is, is now the king who is Uzziah's grandson. So it goes from Uzziah to Jotham to, to Ahaz. And then after Ahaz, it goes Hezekiah. And then after Hezekiah, who do we get? We get the worst. <laughs> so we Evan's get, favorite king. Oh, Manasseh. Anyway, so, uh, he, so Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and he tells him, hey, the people of Syria, uh, Damascus, is, is coming to make war against Jerusalem. Do not worry. They won't succeed. Uh, and then Yahweh straight up, or I, I should say Isaiah, or Yahweh through Isaiah asks Ahaz, hey, you want a sign? Ask for a sign. And Ahaz is like, no, I would never do that. I would never test the Lord, pretending like he's a good Yahweh worshiper, please. Come on, Ahaz. You're not, you're not fooling anyone with your fake piety. Uh, and so he declines. And so God provides. He's like, okay, yeah, if you don't want to ask for one here, I'll give you a sign. Uh, so this is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 14 through 17. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For he know, for before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land uh, whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim, uh, since the day that Ephraim apart- departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So, and this is one of those really interesting things with a lot of the messianic passages is they have dual fulfillments. Not all of them. Some of them are like straight up like, oh, this is just about Jesus, clearly. Uh, but here we see like, well, the virgin giving birth to a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That is clearly huh, what's that, is, that about? Yeah, that is clearly Christ. We can read um, in Matthew again is a great gospel to read for this, but he he references back to it all the time. Um, but there's also this promise of you know the Assyrians are going to be driven away as well, mm-hmm. and that is obviously not something that Jesus does. The Assyrians are long gone by the time that Christ arrives. But this can also be just referring to um, in this point, what is the greatest threat to the covenant? I guess you could say of of God, of God in Israel from the outside, right? So obviously God at any point can relinquish his protection, but it's 
the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is coming. They're crashing upon Jerusalem. Um, and it is only through God's protection that the Assyrians will not yeah. take Jerusalem. In the same way, the Assyrians of the new covenant is is sin and death, right? It's mm-hmm. that is what is uh, the new covenant is built to destroy. And so in the, in this same way, right? The virgin shall conceive a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, and he will drive out the Assyrians of the new covenant, I guess, is the way I would kind of phrase that a little bit. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting, but I think it's a, it's a really cool passage. But you also see the connection that Jesus' disciples even were asking, are you now going to usher in your kingdom? Because when they were reading it, they were understanding it, the, the current siege against or the Assyrian nation having control and dominion over, uh, over Israel. So as you, as you read, and that's what I think is, is important, and I appreciate the fact that you read more than just he will conceive and or she will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, uh, because there's more, to, there's more depth to the, to the response of the Israelite people then we understand and interpret just based upon highlights or con- like verses taken out of its entire yeah. portion of scripture. So, because that's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for God. Are you going to usher in your kingdom out? Are you going to drive out the Assyrians? Are you going to drive out the the oppressing rulers like the Roman government? Are you going to drive them out now? Um, and and God's intent was not just presently this this side of eternity, but for all eternity. So. Right. Yeah. When the disciples were interpreting this forward, they would have viewed the Assyrians as the Romans. Yep. Absolutely. And then Jesus is. Uh, he has another idea. Yeah. So like, a better idea. My kingdom is not what your kingdom is. So uh, moving forward to chapter eight, Isaiah and his wife have a baby. So, hey, good for them. Congratulations. And here's the thing. I, I was about, I was kind of, you know, a lot of the prophets, they do this thing where like God tells them to name their kids certain things as signs. This is one of the better ones where it's not like, you know, not loved or not my people or like those names. Low it's, me. It's a Mahar Shahal Hashbaz, um, which the it doesn't. I don't know, like the Bible doesn't give us like the meaning of that. So I'm like, come on guys. Like I had to, I had to look this up. So, but it means a uh, speed, literally it means speed, spoil, hasten, plunder. <laughs> um, and so what you, what it probably means that like, if you kind of rearrange it in the Hebrew, it would mean swift to the spoil, quick to the plunder. Um, and the reason he is told to name his child this is because uh, before the child cries for the first time, Samaria will be plundered. So there you go. And then for the rest of his life, that kid gets to know that like, that's why you're, <laughs> that's why your name speed soil, hasten plunder. Uh, Isaiah then encourages the people to continue to look to the Lord, even in the midst of dark times. And so Isaiah is kind of his, his whole point is right. Like there's going to be dark times coming, judgment is coming, but look to the Lord for hope. And we get this killer passage. Uh, this is Isaiah chapter nine, starting in verse two. Uh, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness on, on them has shown has light shown you have multiplied the nation you have increased its joy they rejoice before you with joy at the harvest and they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of the oppressor you have broken as on the days uh, the day of midian which is referencing back to uh, gideon is the one who fights the midianites so interesting there for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born to us. A son is given. I know these verses. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace of the increase of his government of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So I, I love how like th- th- this is 
it's clearly divine. Yeah. Like when you use the names wonderful counselor, I mean, that's not divine. Mighty God, that's divine. Yep. Everlasting Father, yep. divine. Prince of Peace, debatable, but <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> divine as well. Um, and so this, it, he's clearly getting at something here. This is not just going to be a human – yeah. he's not just going to be a, hu- a human ruler. So really cool moment there. I also love the callback to um, – to the day of the day of Midian, I should have looked this up before, but I'm, I'm going with my gut that this is re- referencing Gideon's victory over the Midianites. There, um, of the accounts in Judges, I think that one is the most clear. Like, this is God. <laughs> like, yeah. this is not like the Gideon, not the bravest guy in the world. His strategy is not like some winning strategy. Like, it, it, and they, when they charge in, they don't even really do much. It's just God has already caused yeah. them to confu- uh, the um, the Midianites to be confused and run. And so I think it's pointing back to that intentionally because um, Christ is not something that we earned. Christ is not something that we kind of like after a while, you know, like we finally summoned Christ or whatever it is. Like this is clearly fully God's plan. Um, and no one else can take credit for our salvation yep. except for Christ. So really cool deal there. Uh, in the back half of chapter nine and the front half of chapter 10, uh, Yahweh's, uh, they show Yahweh's intent to judge Israel, the Northern kingdom, but also to judge Assyria. So it's kind of the tension that gets walked through with Habakkuk. So remember Habakkuk's whole thing is, you know, he's kind of crawling, calling out for judgment upon Judah and God's like, oh yeah, no worries. The Babylonians are coming. And he's like, well, like the Babylonians are way worse. What are we doing here? And so it's kind of getting at that same idea. Uh, the Northern kingdom is going to fall, but lest they think that nothing is going to happen to Assyria. No, that's not true. <laughs> like Assyria is also going to be judged. Um, and then Isaiah then tells the people of Jerusalem to not fear the Assyrians um, basically because, yeah, they're not going to be around much longer anyway. So the, and which is that, I mean, that must've been nuts, right? Like think about, this is like the height of Assyrian power, and they're about to conquer the largest expanse of territory that they conquer in their empire. Um, Samaria is going to fall. Israel is going to fall. Egypt is going to come under the – I can't remember if they directly conquer them or if they're just like basically make them a vassal state or whatever happens. But um, Assyria is going to rule the ancient Near East. And Isaiah's like, yeah, they're not going to be around much longer. <laughs> that must have seemed like the craziest thing in the world. But it's true. Like a few generations later, Assyria is gone. Yeah. So – uh, absolutely nuts the way that that goes. Um, and then we get this really interesting picture of God's fury against Israel ending and then being redirected towards Assyria. So it's kind of like in that day, he says like, my fury will end. And then, and which is kind of weird. I, I don't know why it says it like that way. We're like, but fury will end. Cause it's really not, he's not saying it's going to end. He's saying it's going to end against, um, it'll end against Israel. But God's fury is not over. He's just going to – basically, he's just going to turn around and look at Assyria and it's like, all right, now it's time for you. Your turn. Yep. Now it's time for you. Uh, Which if you were an Assyrian and you actually believed this stuff, that's pretty scary. Uh, It's true. We then get a little bit more in chapter 11 from this uh, this mysterious Messiah. So it's Jesus. I don't know why I keep (laughs) pretending like we're keeping this a secret or anything. But uh, there shall come forth from the shoot – or sorry, there shall come forth – a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember, Jesse is the father of David, so it's the Davidic line. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what I sees or decipher or sorry, or decide disputes by what the ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek for the and decide with equity the meek for of the earth. He shall strike the enemy with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion uh, fatted together. 
and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not uh, they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, so we just get this, yeah, this really beautiful passage of the peace, right? And we we get that one of the one of the titles of Jesus is Prince of Peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one sense, it's looking forward to the gospel, right? It's the peace that we have with God, where now um, we are justified before Him. We we um, we could not hope to uphold the old covenant, um, and so now the new covenant is not it's not hoping that we can uphold it. It is knowing that Jesus has already done what we cannot do. And we have peace with God in that sense. And then it also looks forward to the peace that will be experienced in the new heaven and the new earth as well. Um, and I think it's, it's, yeah, it's just a beautiful picture. Like it's using animals, which I think is really interesting. Um, but just talking about the perfect peace of when, of Christ's return. Yeah. So really beautiful. Uh, and then finally chapter 12, is the last thing. Uh, it's a really short prophecy of the days of the Messiah when the people will recognize that Yahweh was angry with them and yet they will give thanks for his grace and mercy. Um, I, I just, I don't know, I, I've just read over this passage so many times. I just never, it just struck me when I was reading it. So I really wanted to read it. It's only six verses um, and then we'll break for, a, break for a second here and then come back with the second half of Isaiah. But Isaiah chapter 12, starting in verse one, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say on that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim his name is is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for a great for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So it's just, yeah, this picture of the people of Israel are going to go through incredible pain um, and yet being able to be thankful for for God, for the relationship with Yahweh and understanding that, that like Isaiah's name says, right, that Yahweh mm-hmm. is their salvation. I think it's a beautiful way to, yeah. to look at it. Uh, well, before we continue on today, we do want to take a moment to remind you to, uh, you know, hey, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, that would be swell of you to do. Um, I said it last week, but it's true. You know, if you want to just give me and Aaron the best Christmas gift in the whole world, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're trying to get up to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts by the end of the year. So, uh, and like we said before, you know, nothing really happens if we get there, but <laughs> but it would just be cool, you know, a nice a nice round number, as it were. Uh, but Aaron, you're going to kick off Isaiah. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll take the second half that we're reading this week. Uh, this is not the second half of Isaiah. It's still the first half of Isaiah because Isaiah is a massive book. The first half, oh, the second half of the first quarter of the book, I guess is the way we <laughs> yeah. can put it. Um, but... Uh, I will say this. I, I've been pleasantly surprised with Spotify. The numbers keep tricking up as far as ratings go. It's just fun to see more and more people like the the content, like the uh, the the bantering back and forth and the discussion. So I appreciate you guys leaving a review. Um, just so you know, it's Evan's wish for a Christmas present for hitting 100. I thought we would hit 100 in Apple Podcasts this year, and we're like sitting at 94 right now. We're so, so close. Um, I six more by the end of the year, and we'll hit, we'll hit. I think it's a pretty big milestone. I just think in the podcast world. 
hitting 100 reviews or ratings. So anyways, all that to say, we're going to, the rest of the, the, the podcast will cover the chapter, chapters 13 to 27. Uh, this is kind of the third section of the book of Isaiah. Uh, we'll find uh, that the, the section will uh, encapsulate several different oracles or cycles of oracles, um, prophetic words against, uh, really, this is where the, the, some of the tone shifts a bit, uh, where we'll see this idea of God's judgment and grace for the world. Um, and in this section, we'll see Isaiah revealing uh, the sovereign ways that God with uh, the ways of God with the nations, his sovereignty. Um, he's not a local tribal deity, but the judge and savior ruling over all the world. Uh, so you'll see not just his, you know, Isaiah doesn't just prophesy about Judah and about some of these, but it, it's actually a progressive thing we're see to where at the very end of this, the third series of oracles here at the end of the section of chapter 24 to 27, you'll actually see uh, God ruling uh all nations, not just specific nations, uh, and the judgments towards them and salvation for them. So, um, but it just shows his sovereignty, his judgment and grace for the world as it is. Uh, and so we get the first set of the oracles here, uh, the, the idea of the here and now uh, in chapter 13, verse 1 to 20, verse 6. Um, Isaiah will show the people of Judah here in the, these, these chapters um, that the nations of the world are subject to God. Uh, and the, the oracles were, will reveal judgment over, and this is where you'll see Isaiah take time to uh, specifically talk to specific nations. Um, you'll see the first one he, he talks to is, is Babylon. He talks, uh, the, the day of the Lord is looming over the entire world, and he starts with a conversation of, of Babylon. He goes to Philistia, he goes to Moab, he goes to this, uh, the Syria-Israeli alliance, uh, which is Damascus, who they have an alliance in, uh, will come to ruin. Um, and then you'll see the, the conversation in this first series of oracles where he, he is then condemning judgment towards Egypt, uh, because in this time Egypt turned or Judah turned to Egypt, but God who is over, uh, and has the power to save both Egypt and uh, or destroy it is so God's revealing his sovereignty to these nations. Um, and I just want to read you a glimpse of some of these, uh, one of these, um, judgments that Isaiah is quoting. This is in chapter 14, verse 29 through 32. And this is regarding uh, Philistia specifically. Um, so this comes after the, the conversation with Babylon. And, and then he shifts to Philistia. It says this, don't rejoice all of you in Philistia because the rod of the one who struck you was broken. In, in essence, referring to Babylon, referring to the ones who had dominion over them. Uh, For a viper will come from the root of, from the root of a snake and from its egg comes a flying serpent. The firstborn of the poor will be well-fed and then impoverished will lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with hunger and your remnant will be slain. Wail, you gates, cry out, O city, tremble with fear, all Philistia, for a cloud of dust is coming from the north and there's no one missing from the invaders' ranks. What answer will be given to the messengers from that nation? The Lord has founded Zion and his oppressed people find their refuge in her. Uh, and so you see this, you see this conversation where uh, God has been revealing himself as the sovereign savior of his people. Uh, you see these other nations are um, taking and oppressing God's people, but also God is allowing them to oppress his people because of their rebellion. But at the end of the day, he's still saying, I, they're my people. Uh, and so he just takes time and and through the prophet Isaiah, will kind of call out condemnation. He'll call out judgment on these nations. Um, and even with the Damascus alliance that Israel has, Damascus is going to lie in ruins. That's what <laughs> that's what Isaiah prophesies. Uh, and Egypt is this this reminder of like Judah's turn to Egypt. But why turn to Egypt when I'm the one that has the power to destroy or save Egypt? You're you're refer or trusting in the wrong thing. Um, and so he he speaks out these these judgments that are coming. Uh, and then in the second series of oracles in this chapter, which is for chapter 21 to chapter 23. 
you'll see that there, he, he almost dives into a deeper truth um, of each of these situations. Isaiah will again show how the rule of God over, over the nations of the day, but now he reveals the inner character of these cultures. Um, and so it's the cause for judgment. It's the cause for problem. And so uh, as it progresses through, he'll call out Babylon. And he'll just, he just reveals the character that he, the human treachery leaves God's people with no earthly hope because of Babylon's just just horrible. <laughs> uh, they're just bad. They're just the, the treachery, the the evil. The it, it's going to leave God God's people no hope on earth, um, which is even more profound in in the conversation of the coming Messiah too. Um, you'll see the the prophetic oracle uh, of Edom uh, and the character issues there, where it depicts a prolonged darkness enveloping a frightening world. You'll see that Edom has this issue. Uh, it's just dark, darkness. There's no hope. There's no light. There's no um, any future, anything to cling to and say, hey, this is going to save me. Uh, and so that you see that with Edom. Well, and Edom's so interesting too, because like you, you, they get jar- judged almost more harshly than the other nations because they're supposed to be a friend to Israel. Because yep. remember, Edom is the kingdom descended from Esau. Yep. So Israel and, and Edom. Jacob. Yep. Israel Esau and Jacob, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Israel and Edom should be almost sister nations to a certain point. But we read in uh, Obadiah that they're openly rejoicing when Jerusalem falls. And yeah. so it's like, eh. It's not going to be good for you. Yeah. Well, and again, and that just, I mean, you go back to, there's, it's such a tragic reality, but they were brothers, Jacob and Esau, and there was deceit, there was manipulation. Right. And then there was, it, it was an appearance of a reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, um, where you see Jacob coming back in and Esau's coming and he splits his people and his, his, his possessions in two and has one wife on one side, his favorite wife on the other side. And, uh, and, but then Esau is like, come and have a meal with me. Like there's this reconciliatory moment, um, but it didn't translate to the people. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, the reconciliation between the brothers was very much yes, real. But not the but, people. Yeah. But the nations just cause carrying each other farther apart. Yeah. Anyways, that'll preach. Um, so then he talks about Arabia and the, the, the character there that's revealed is that the human ferocity, ferocity, uh, scattering fugitives in a darkening world. Uh, it's just, again, it's just this continued divisiveness. It's just this darkness that is brooding over, which I love because it, it just shows, uh, as he shifts into into Jerusalem, it shows the light of the world growing dark, uh, which is tragic. But you have this stark comparison c- coming out of the Messiah references, the Messianic references uh, of the light, the hope, the brightness, the vibrance, the, the, the joy that's coming you now see the darkness that's existing in the world. Uh, and so even in Jerusalem, you, it shows that the light is growing dark. Um, and that's, it's an, it's sad and unfortunate um, and tragic. You see Tyre where the concerns, the judgment and redemption of Tyre is characterized as a prostitute, which is a very, which is a very um, often referred to comparison for God's people or humanity is this prostitute type reality, this prostitute type relationship. Uh, And so you see the second series of oracles is really to kind of digging into the deeper truth and it reveals the character of each of these cultures that are being called out. So you read through these few chapters and kind of be introduced to some of the, the, the problems of sin and evil and darkness in each and every, in each and every culture. Uh, and then you get to the third series of oracles in, cha- in this section of the uh, of chapter, which is kind of where we'll wrap up in chapter 24 and 20 through 27. Uh, you'll see it's, it's like the final end. Uh, and this is where, I, again, this is not, we, we've we kind of harped on it enough with Jeremiah, but there was no hope in Jeremiah almost. Uh, there's like little glimpses, but there's some very strong glimpses of hope uh, in the book of Isaiah. And you see this in this section, like and on all of these oracles, you see God's judgment coming to these nations. You see God calling out the character that is revealed in these cultures. And then you see uh, the final end that God, you shows God's ruling of all the nations in judgment and salvation. Um 
And it gets from it starts from kind of a sad spot and it ends with a, a very hopeful, resilient spot. Um, it says this: the, the first the first oracle that we'll find towards the final end of chapter twenty four is the wasted city, uh, where the Lord is ruling from Mount Zion. He violently dismantles the present evil age and replaces it with the joy of worldwide worship. Um, and this is the hope, right? This is the joy. This is like okay, God's going to usher in His will and destroy evil and over and and, and overcome. And, and issue uh, usher in a new era of worship that has resulted in joy. Uh, the Lord will punish. You'll find the second oracle here is that the Lord will punish the and rule. He rules in triumph over his enemies and in the glory before his own people. You see that he'll swallow up death forever, which is really such an incredible chapter of ch- chapter twenty five here. Um, the redeemed will celebrate the liberation by God. And I just want to read us an excerpt of this real quick in chapter 25, uh, verses one through five. It says, Lord, you are my, are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have turned the city into a pile of rocks, a fortified city into ruins. The fortress of barbarians is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will honor you. The cities of violent nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold for the poor person, a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a refuge for the storms from storms and a shade from heat. With When the breath of the violent is like a storm against a wall, like the heat in a dry land, you will subdue the uproar of barbarians. As the shade of clouds cools the heat of the day, so he will silence the song of the violent. And it continues on just with this this depiction of God's power, of his might, where he will swallow up death forever, where he will provide victory. Evil and evil nations will no longer, the barbarian hordes will no longer have power or ability. They will actually be the ones that are fearful uh, because of the power and the might of God. You see, it continues to progress from not just swallowing up death and fear forever, but he also will then ordain peace, uh, where you see this picture that God ordains for his people their final and complete victory. Uh, the perspective uh, in this chapter of chapter 26, you'll see this actually, this 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 time of this time perspective in chapter 26 will shift between past, present, and future. Uh, and it's Isaiah looking past, looking at the present, and, and projecting to the future how God's going to ordain peace, how God has established peace. Um, and, and so you'll see this kind of uh, timelessness to God's to God's provision there. So, uh, and then finally, we see at the end, chapter twenty-seven, uh, that the whole world will be fruitful, uh, that God will destroy evil and will bring His people home. Uh, but it starts off with, I think, a, a, a kind of a fun little fun little ditty uh, to use Evan's phrase. Um, but in just verse one of chapter twenty-seven, and I'm just going to read it, and then I'll, I'll share a couple things. It says, on that day, the Lord with his relentless, large, strong sword will bring judgment on Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the monster that is in the sea. And then it shifts into the, the prophetic utterance and ordinance of, of how the whole world's going to be fruitful. God's going to bring provision. He's going to destroy evil and he'll bring his people home. And there's going to be a time of prosperity. Uh, but I think the Leviathan reference is just kind of interesting and fun um, because we see uh, a reference to a great sea monster, I believe, in right. Job. Um, and then you see this like dragon-like reference in in Isaiah here. So the, yeah, with Job, the question is, is, is Leviathan supposed to be the mythical creature Leviathan, or is it supposed to be like a very poetic description of like the crocodile? Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting to... 
to go through all of that. Either way, the point is the same where it's like God has control over the most mighty yeah. of things. And that's and that's the point that's being made in 27 here, right? So uh, I, I copied this down from one of the, the resources I was using. I can't remember which one, so I'm sorry. I should probably cite my sources. Um, but it's this idea of ancient evils and monstrous horror. Um, it's a powerful dragon. It's a powerful dragon-like deity, according to Ugaritic myths, um, and that's and this is where going back to Evan's point, like the threefold description: a fleeing serpent, a twisting serpent, and a dragon that is in the sea, is matched by the Lord's threefold description of a har- of the hard and great and strong sword. Uh, and I think that's a powerful distinction to be made, um, because although the idea of a leviathan is something I think we can't fully grasp or understand, although we can have some kind of uh, imagery of, because we also see the picture of a dragon, a great dragon in Revelation, which we just talked about a few weeks ago, the whole picture book of Revelation. Um, but I just think it's kind of a fun little ditty as we're talking about God's sovereignty, God's power, his provision to bring all of his people home, destroying evil. And this, the ultimate picture of evil is this picture of a Leviathan, is this dragon-like massive serpent, whether it's a, a, a a, a graphic picture of a, a crocodile or an alligator, or if it's a legitimate whatever uh, myth or of a, of a dragon. At the end of the day, the depiction is not whether Leviathan is a legit thing or it's a mythical thing or whatever, but it's that even that God subdues with his with his strong, powerful sword. Um, yeah, and well, I just think it's a powerful picture and fun one. It's hard because we just don't have we just really don't have myth in. Uh, in we don't the, in modern. Well, it's, I'm it's, just kidding. It's a very us specific thing. Mm-hmm. Where and by us, I mean uh, American. <laughs> like it's yes. A, um, I think as as the world gets a little bit more modern, as the world gets a little bit more um, naturalistic by philosophy, mm-hmm. by by default, we we lose a lot of that thing as well. As, as, a lot of this as well, but just our culture, we're not very old. Like not I would at say, all. not at all. Yeah, you're right. I would say our our time of mythology really is like the old west. And that's kind of it. That's um, true. And so like when we think of myth, like um, the great American myths, we think of like Paul Bunyan and Johnny Appleseed. And then maybe it's like real people who we've kind of mythologized a little bit. So you can talk about like, uh, you know, Davy Crockett or uh, Wyatt Earp and those people. But we, we don't have that um, – those shared stories that have gone on for so long. Whereas in this culture, like you have like Leviathan, which that idea had been around for centuries. Mm. And it's a story that, you know, would have been told. And even if the understanding wasn't that it, or even if they understood this wasn't a real creature, they would instantly have a picture in their heads of what yeah. the, the the mightiness of the thing that Isaiah is talking about. Whereas we just don't really, we don't get to share that today. So that does kind of bum me out That's a little true. bit, I suppose. But yeah, so I just, I thought it was a fun little, uh, just depiction because I've always heard Leviathan and I think it's something we did talk about in Job a little bit. I think we alluded to in the, the whole idea of the great dragon in, in Revelation, but even Isaiah references it. Uh, and so the, the, at the very least, even the myth of a Leviathan, it just shows it's a, it's a great picture of evil that God still subdues because of his power and his mind, his sovereignty. And so um, you see that it, it's the thing that wraps up the third oracle or introduces the third oracle wraps up the third oracle in the last section there. Sorry. Um, and and you just see God's sovereignty and provision as he's destroying evil to, to bring his people back. So, uh, And that's kind of where we're en- going to end Isaiah this week, and we'll pick it up again next week. So There you be. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we are not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But thank you all so much for listening. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.